Welcome market participants to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. The official start to spring, the Masters, is underway and competing for your attention. But before you start streaming, we'll discuss three things in credit markets that caught our eye this week that we believe you should know about. Let's get started. This week, our three things are, one, BP is but the latest multinational attempting to change its stripes to become more bondholder friendly. We'll have a look. Two, loads of economic data in the U.S. is pointing to a recovery that is looking like it might be a bit unruly. We'll look at the ISM's latest PMI releases for both manufacturing and services as prime examples. And three, Jamie Dimon's letter to shareholders sounds like it could use an editor at 66 pages, but his perspective, given the sweep of his bank's reach, his experience, and his candor, make it a must-read, or at least a must-listen to our key takeaways. All right, let's dig in a bit, starting with BP. Now, I'm old enough to still think of this as British Petroleum, but not old enough to remember Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. So now you can bookend my age. I'll bet, however, most of you remember the Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010, a material event to credit investors. But we're way past that now, even though the company is still paying for the resolution of that situation. In any event, BP put out an update statement this week on its progress towards its $35 billion net debt target. That target was established back in August 2020 as part of the company's fairly dramatic strategic overhaul announcement. Driven by its ambition to deliver net zero emissions by 2050, the company is seeking to reimagine energy and reinvent BP. Like I said, dramatic. The company intends to transform from an international energy company producing resources to an integrated energy company delivering solutions to customers. That means aggressively reallocating resources to developing low-carbon energy sources, building scale and convenience retail and electric charging stations, and partnering with countries, cities, and industries to drive their energy transformations. So what does this mean for creditors? Well, strategic transitions of this magnitude involve a multitude of operational risks, Given the energy transition already underway, it exposes BP to a wave of technological risk as well. Now, to manage the transition, BP will be able to draw upon its significant experience and financial wherewithal over an extended time frame, 30 years, with clearly laid out performance markers set out along the way. This is clearly an ESG-favorable initiative, which should help it attract the kind of capital it will need, and it is playing into markets for clean energy that are increasingly in demand from governmental, commercial, and individual customers. And perhaps acknowledging the risks involved, the company has committed to reducing its financial risk by setting the new lower net debt target and stating a goal of maintaining a strong investment-grade credit rating. It has earned some credibility towards the latter by balancing stakeholder interests in the past most recently by enacting a 50% dividend cut in 2020. With that as background, the company provided creditor-friendly news this week, announcing that it has achieved its $35 billion net debt target during the current quarter and well ahead of its goal set for Q1 2022 due to proceeds from asset sales 
and very strong business performance. Results are due out formally April 27th. We will be watching. All right, on to our second thing, the ISM surveys. The fact that both surveys show that the U.S. is expanding is not exactly a surprise at this point, but the latest PMIs out of ISM for both manufacturing and services were breathtaking in the strength and breadth of the readings. Manufacturing came in at 64.7, blowing away the estimate of 61.5, and the largest month-over-month jump since 1983. Recall that readings over 50 indicate expansion. All but one of the survey's 18 industry groups reported growth in March. Employment expanded for the fourth straight month. New orders came in at the highest level since 2004, same for production. Expect more of this in the near future as customer stockpiles being too low hit a record 46%. Now, similar story is unfolding on the other side of the economy, services, where the survey hit 63.7, which soared from the weather-affected February reading of 55.3 and topped literally every individual estimate in the Bloomberg consensus, which in the aggregate was 59. It was the strongest reading since 1997. All 18 of the industry groups reported growth. Employment ticked higher for the third consecutive month. All-time highs were recorded in both business activity and new orders. Customer stockpiles being too low were just 33% of respondents, indicating a bit of a more rational environment compared to what's going on in the manufacturing side of things. So all is well, right? Well, not so much. If we read through the anecdotal comments, we get a distinct sense that this restart is bordering on chaotic. In manufacturing, companies and suppliers continue to struggle to meet increasing rates of demand due to COVID-19 impacts limiting availability of parts and materials, extended lead times, wide-scale shortages of critical basic materials, rising commodities prices, and difficulties in transporting products are all affecting segments of the manufacturing economy. Worker absenteeism, short-term shutdowns due to part shortages, and difficulties in filling open positions continue to be issues that limit manufacturing growth potential. That's all commentary from ISM. In services, they note that production capacity constraints, material shortages, weather and challenges in logistics, and human resources continue to cause supply chain disruption. Now, two points we believe creditors should bear in mind amidst all of this record-setting economic rebound. One, this is not going to be smooth sailing, anything but. We remain cautious regarding the pandemic's ability to throw a wrench into things, witness the outbreak in Michigan and what has transpired in Europe, and take note of the friction showing up in the restart, whether it's labor shortages, supply chain breakdowns, or higher prices for inputs. It will all leave a mark. And two, this period of robust, if not chaotic, growth will be transitory in nature, at least that which is driven by stimulus this year. And remember, the infrastructure bill, in whatever form it ultimately passes, will be phased in over time. Pay close attention to how all this is framed. The emerging narrative here is, that the unprecedented fiscal response has worked remarkably well and the need for emergency monetary accommodation is no longer necessary. That, I assure you, is not priced into markets. 
Now, the Fed clearly maintains or remains steadfast, rather, in its drive to achieve full employment, which we believe is going to be more difficult to achieve than most expect. And that will likely keep it highly accommodated until at least 2023. But ultimately, the effectiveness of the vaccines in achieving herd immunity will be highly influential in determining the central bank's stance on whether or not significant economic risks remain. Pay more attention to developments on that front rather than the economic fireworks sure to take place over the balance of the year. All right. Speaking of economic fireworks, Jamie Dimon, chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the free world's most valuable financial institution, set off a few this week by announcing in his annual letter to shareholders that the economic boom in the U.S. could last through 2023. Mr. Diamond, quote, has little doubt the U.S. economy will likely boom, unquote, as a result of excess savings, new stimulus savings, huge deficit spending, more QE, a new potential infrastructure bill, a successful vaccine, and euphoria around the end of the pandemic. It's quite a list. He points out that the average consumer is well-positioned to spend with his or her balance sheet in excellent shape with leverage at a 40-year low. He also notes the buildup of cash on corporate balance sheets as well. Now, speaking of stimulus, he notes that during the pandemic, it was appropriate that fiscal and monetary policy be fairly well-coordinated, working in concert to counter the pandemic-related downturn. However, he goes on to say, Much of the stimulus may hit when the economy is doing quite well, triggering inflation. In that case, fiscal and monetary policy may very well be at odds. That view is consistent with our own that we just talked about in our second thing. Our risks, he cites, you've heard from me in past episodes. One, the new COVID-19 variants may be more virulent and resistant to the vaccine, which could obviously reverse a booming economy damage the equity markets, and reduce interest rates as there is a rush to safety. And two, the increase in inflation may not be temporary and may not be slow, forcing the Fed to raise rates sooner and faster than people expect. He also notes that we cannot overemphasize the importance of cyber risk, not just to the bank, but also to its customers, countries, economies, and critical industries, such as telecom and power. He points out that problems associated with healthcare are, quote, serious, rampant, and obvious, unquote, resulting in costs that are more than twice those of the developed world without justification by better outcomes. He goes on to mention how J.P. Morgan Chase joined up with Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway to create Haven to address some of these problems. Well, Haven was disbanded in 2020. I guess healthcare inefficiency won out. Mr. Diamond pulls no punches when it comes to public policy failures, which he attributes much of the anemic recovery post the GFC to. One theme he pounds home is weakness in the labor participation rate, calling for the need to, one, build an education system that includes training for skills that lead to good jobs. Two, improve wages for low-skilled work. Three, make it easier for those with a criminal record to get a job. Four, reform and improve our social safety net programs. And five, make the healthcare system work better. All of this, he points out, will help boost the all-important labor participation rate. 
He spends quite a bit of time uh, on China, noting that over the last 40 years, China has done a highly effective job of growing its economy under leadership that has been strategic, consistent, and coherent. And unlike developed democratic nations, it can both macro-manage and micro-manage its economy and move very fast. He believes the Chinese see an America that is losing ground in technology, infrastructure, and education, a nation torn and crippled by politics, as well as racial and income inequality, and a company unable to coordinate government policies, fiscal, monetary, industrial, and regulatory, in any coherent way to accomplish national goals. Unfortunately, he opines, there is a lot of truth to this. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, BP is the latest multinational that is attempting to change its stripes to become more bondholder friendly. Keep an eye on that progress. Two, the ISM's latest PMI releases for both manufacturing and services are pointing to a recovery that is looking like it might be a bit unruly. And three, Jamie Dimon's letter to shareholders is decidedly upbeat over the near term, but a rather sobering one taking stock of America's future. We would encourage you to read the piece. As always, thanks for joining us. We know it's Masters Friday. We won't tell if you have a peak this afternoon. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. See you next week.